Good morning, Journey Church. How are we? All right, five of y'all are good. I guess the rest of you are no comment. <clears throat> well, my name is Nathan McCallum. It's good to see you this morning as we open God's Word together. Thank you, Kaylee, for reading that for us. Uh, you find yourself, we find ourselves in a series uh, through the book of Philippians that we've titled Gospel Power, Gospel Joy. Uh, and we're just kind of walking through what Paul said to the Philippian church. This was written between AD 60 and AD 62. And so we've been, this is actually week five uh, of the series in this, in this deal. And when I say gospel power, gospel joy, what do I mean by the word gospel? I mean, I know it's easy for me sometimes to take for granted that when I say gospel, we all know what I'm talking about. And, and I think that's a dangerous thing to do. So every so many weeks, I definitely want to just lay before you what, when, when we say gospel, what does that mean? When we say gospel joy, gospel power, what do, what do, we, what do we mean by the term gospel? And, and here's, what it, here's what it means. This is one way to think about it, um, that we are all created in the image of God. That God created mankind in his image to worship him, to glorify him, to honor him, to give him praise. And yet we, from our first parents, Adam and Eve on forward, have said we would rather be God ourselves. We would rather receive the praise and the glory do you. And there creates a separation between mankind and God. But God, even before the foundation of the world, set apart God, the Son, the second person in the Trinity, to come as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins on the cross. He lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserved to die, and he was raised to life. And as we put our faith in him, we are now made new creations in the midst of this old creation. And then one day he will come back and restore all things. It's a story with a message of reconciliation that Jesus has come to save us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Our need for salvation and the supply of salvation in Christ. And so when we say gospel power, gospel joy, we're looking at the way that that news actually impacts our life. So here we are week five. Last week, we kind of addressed the transition in the letter where Paul was transitioning into this idea that he said in verse 27 of chapter one, let the manner of your lives be worthy of the gospel. And what we said last week was that what that meant, what it meant for us to have lives worthy of the gospel is it meant, first of all, we had to see that there was a primary call on our life that it would be a life worthy of the gospel. And the way we would see that first and foremost is that there's a primary citizenship for us. Yes, we're citizens of Arkansas, we're citizens of the United States of America, but first and foremost, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And as that citizenship becomes primary and what drives all that we do, we're able to stand firm in the face of persecution and suffering as a public witness to the world of the good news of the gospel. And we do this through the profound courage given to us by God through the grace that it is to believe in his name and the grace to suffer for his sake. Now, some of you may be like, if you were able to do that in two minutes, why'd you take 50 minutes to tell us that last week? Because you got to nuance it a little bit. So here we go. So this week where we're at, we're kind of looking again at this idea from verse 27. What does it mean to let the manner of our life be worthy of the gospel? But he's taking another approach at it. He's saying not only should it affect 
those things we just discussed, but here's what he's going to say today is it really should impact us and make us united. It should make us united. We see later in the letter, if you look at uh, chapter 4, verse 2, there appears to be a disagreement between two people, Yodia and Syntyche. They seem to have a disagreement. So we know that there's at least a little bit of disunity in the church at Philippi. It's also quite possible if you think about just the persecution and the suffering coming from these Roman, uh, this, this Roman uh, occupation of where they are that, that quite frankly, it'd be easy for them to kind of take a step back. So like last week, we talked about how he's encouraging them to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, to stand firm. And it would be easy that there could be some believers in the church that might be like, oh, I, I just don't know if, if I really wanna give my life to that. And you could see the disunity that that could possibly cause. It seems as though predominantly though, the church at Philippi was mostly united. And I think the reality is just because the churches are united, if you go throughout a lot of Paul's letters, you're going to see a call to unity, whether they're really suffering major disunity or not. Because the reality of the situation is that unity takes work. It takes work. It is a fight to get unified as a church, and it's a fight to stay unified. And the Philippian church, while near and dear to Paul's heart, definitely needed the charge from him for unity. And so do we. So do we. As I mentioned last week, I believe by God's grace, we've been unified as a church in this last season of our life, this season of transition. And that's amazing. But to maintain unity is going to be that much harder for a few reasons. Number one, we have a real enemy. We have a real enemy coming against us. And he wants to entice us to live lives that are less than worthy of the gospel. He wants us to succumb to the pressure of culture. He wants to lull us to sleep by the comforts of America. We have an enemy. But not only that, not only do we have a spiritual enemy, we actually have our own flesh. Like our own flesh just kind of wars within us. If you're a Christian, as I mentioned a second ago, you become a new creation, but you still live in the old creation. You still live in the flesh. And there's a battle inside us oftentimes as believers with our old self. And then to make all of that worse, we also have what's possible a little bit of church disillusionment, church hurt, and that can happen in a lot of ways. And so for a lot of us, between our enemy, between possible church disillusionment, between your flesh, there's soil that could be in our hearts that is ripe for the fruit of disunity. We gotta fight for unity. And in the face of the, press, in the, face of the pressures that we have, how can we as a church intentionally fight for unity? Well, I think we can get some clues to that from this passage here in Philippians, the same way that Paul's encouraging the Philippian church to fight for unity. And so when we look at the unity that Paul's encouraging here in Philippians chapter two, I think we're gonna see four aspects of this unity that all contribute actually to the reality of that unity. And so we're gonna see first, we're gonna see a, the center of Christian unity. We're gonna see the mindset of Christian unity. We're gonna see the doctrine of Christian unity. I know y'all are excited for that one. And we're gonna see the future of Christian unity. So the center of it, the mindset of it, 
the doctrine of that unity, and then finally, the future of that unity. So first, what do I mean by the center of Christian unity? Well, unity actually isn't very unique to Christianity. And we discussed this actually, oddly enough, in the sermon that I preached back in January when Dan was sick through John 17. And we talked about even then that the world gets what it means to be united around a common idea or common love. We see it in all kinds of areas in our culture and in our world. People get unified all the way from things like a certain exercise regimen. If you're, you know, um, CrossFit or maybe you're like, I'm a body weight only kind of guy. You see people unify around that. You see people unify around diets. Uh, they rally around certain ideas there. You see people obviously unite around politics and even something like hobbies. You see sports, fandom, people unite around that, work associations, school spirit. People unite around things in our world all the time. This past Friday, uh, we were at the girls 4A state soccer championship game. My daughter, who's a junior, is on the soccer team and she has missed the last two months of the sea or last month of the season because of a concussion she sustained at the end of April. So she unfortunately was not able to play in the game. And because of her concussion, just as crazy as our lives have been right now with, with everything we have going on, we just haven't made the effort to go to a lot of the games just because half of, most of them, she didn't even dress out. She just was there to support her team. And we just used that as a way, that was two hours. We couldn't really devote to that at the time with her not even dressing out. But state championship, we were gonna be there. And so we drive down and, and I bring it up just to say like, I hadn't cheered on these girls in a month. I hadn't seen these parents in a month. And it, I mean, it, the game kicked off and I, the fervor was up. I mean, we were united around our daughters. I was yelling things that I probably shouldn't even be standing here preaching today, but you gotta call it both ways, okay? You gotta call it both ways. If you're a ref in the room, please, for the love of all things holy, call it both ways. You can unite around things in our world so easily. It didn't take much to sit there and cheer on our team and be devastated at the loss. You see, unity is not that unique to God's people. But what is unique about our unity is what we unite around. Notice what he says in verse one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. At the center of Christian unity is Jesus Christ. And we see first in the way we experience Jesus Christ. Notice all the ways Paul says we experience Jesus. Encouragement, comfort, love, affection. You even see that in chapter one, verse eight, where he says he has the affection of Jesus Christ for them. Sympathy. These are things that we experience. And it happens, if you notice in verse one, there's two ways that we experience these from Jesus. We experience them first because we are in Christ, verse one, beginning of verse one, and also a participation with the spirit. The Greek word here, or the participation, the word Participation is translated from the Greek word koinonia, which typically means fellowship. And so what you have here is we have Christian unity that is predicated by a shared experience of Jesus and having fellowship together of the same Holy Spirit. And before you get 
too far in your head thinking like, well, if I've experienced encouragement, if comfort from his love, I want you to understand this is not a question for Paul. Paul's not saying now, if you're one of the Christians that has actually experienced these things, he's using it more as a rhetorical device to say, since you've experienced these things. Like if, if these are the things that you've experienced, then this. And so for anyone in Christ, this is what we should experience. Now, this doesn't mean that you're always flying on a high note. You know, it's not like nothing can ever take you down because you're so encouraged all the time. Maybe a lot of you today feel discouraged. But the reality is that in Christ, these resources are available to us. Sometimes we forget. We walk away. We feel like we don't have that encouragement. And so I would just encourage you today to remember the encouragement that you've received in Jesus. Remember the comfort of his love. Press into that. Press into the affection and sympathy that's available to you in Christ and let it soothe your soul and make you more apt to experience unity because the way we are going to experience unity is centered around the person and experience that we share together of Jesus Christ. And the unity that he's asking them and desiring for them to have, we actually see in verse two. So rereading at the end of verse one, if any affection and sympathy, verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is the actual charge of unity, that we would have the same mind, that we would have the same love. But again, still, the world can experience unity this way. Groups can have the same mind about something. Groups can love the same thing. So what makes this distinct for followers of Jesus? Well, it's that our unity, again, is centered on Jesus and Paul is directing the church to be in full accord, not partial accord on some things. He's asking them and praying for them to be in full accord together. We can be united in our world around a lot of things, but rarely do we see people united in full accord. Like we can be united around a career, but maybe not a sports team. That may sound silly, but just as an example, I'm a certified insurance counselor. I know that just got a lot of you excited. And I get to do continuing education. And so like we come together and we, we geek out over weird terms in insurance contracts. And we can have a lot of community around that if you want to call it that. And yet, in a break room, if I start talking about the Red Wolves and their Razorback fans, some of that unity might dissolve a little bit. It's a silly example, but we can understand that that's the way it works. You see it even with hobbies and politics. You see guys that'll go golf together, and then they'll get together after the round and argue about different views on policy or who should be in office. I mean, we see unity, but we don't see unity in full accord. Often these alliances are around some things, but then around things that they don't unify on, it gives them conflict. And we have to, in those moments, we have to try to figure out, like, how do we disassociate this one area that we aren't unified with, with this other area that we are? And sadly, what we're seeing more and more in our culture is that we can't seem to do that very well. 
And so our sphere of influence shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until everyone that we really associate with agrees with us on everything. We see it in the world and we see that it's a challenge because our culture struggles with identity. As a culture, we emphasize the desire to create our own identity for ourselves. And then we often look to our career, to our hobbies, to our family, to politics or other things that actually define us. And when our identity and what defines us is something like that, then when you rub up against somebody who doesn't see it the same way as you, it creates a rub. It makes us frustrated and it makes unity very difficult. But it doesn't just happen in the world, it happens in the church. Sometimes churches try to center their identity and their unity on someone or something other than Jesus. They don't probably mean to, but we do it. Maybe they center it on a, a specific Christian trait. Like, I want to be known as a church that is loving. Amen. It's great. I want to be known as a church that tells the truth. Sometimes you see when, when we center ourselves on an aspect of Christianity instead of Jesus himself, things begin to deteriorate. Maybe it's a specific person. Maybe there's a gifted communicator in the church. And so they kind of rally around this preacher or this communicator. Maybe it's an amazing uh, guitarist or vocalist and they want to rally around this praise leader. You see entire denominations built around a specific type of spiritual gift, elevating that as kind of the end all be all. You see churches that are centered around theological systems. They're more, they're more known for a specific set of beliefs that are not just orthodox beliefs, but are things that, are, that they particularly ascribe to kind of second tier issues. Maybe it's built around a dynamic worship experience. It's all about how crisp and clean the Sunday morning experience is. Or maybe a church is built around social justice. They want to be known for the giving to the poor. They want to be known for the marginalized and the way that they reach out to them. All of these are wonderful things. They're godly things. But when they become the center of what the church unites around, it's easy to get off kilter. If Jesus, though, is the center of our unity, then the way we love others, the way we tell the truth, the way that we preach, the way we study theology, the way, the way we worship, the way we go about justice in our world, it becomes Christ-centered and now has a Christ-centered motivation and foundation instead of those things being the foundation themselves. And not only that, Jesus being who we unite around helps us to see unity is actually possible even with everything we have that fights against our unity. The ultimate endeavor of life, as Paul says in 121, is to live for Christ. So career, success, family, politics, hobbies, they all can come under the rule of Jesus to where they can actually work themselves out in our lives the way they were intended to do it. And if Jesus is the most important thing that we unite around as a church, then he makes all other smaller unities and disunities pale in comparison to the unity that we have in him. The center of Christian unity is Jesus and we can unite around him because we are in him and because we have fellowship with his spirit together. It's the center of Christian unity. But what's more, with Jesus as the center of our unity, 
we can now be of one mind, of one mind. So what's the mindset of Christian unity? Well, the first thing Paul's gonna tell us is actually what the mindset of Christian unity is not. If you look at the beginning of chapter three, here's what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So one thing Christian, the mindset of Christian unity is not is it's not a mindset of selfish ambition and it's not a mindset of conceit. The word translated conceit here, kenodoxia, literally means vain glory. Vain glory or a state of pride that has no proper basis. Basically to say like, I need the glory for my own value and my own worth. Or to say, I have a lot of pride in myself, but underlying that pride, there's no foundation. There's no basis for it. Selfish ambition and conceit are at war with unity because this mindset, this way of us thinking is so self-oriented and has a view of self that is out of step with reality. It's not just that it's wrong to think of yourself first. It's not just that. It's that in the church, selfish thinking is giving glory to yourself, but doing it in vanity because there's no basis for you to be the one receiving the weight of the praise. Selfish ambition and conceit. Now, how are some ways that we see this play out in churches? Well, one might be just the way that churches are about their theology, always having to feel like they are right on every single issue. Like there's some, what I call open and close-handed issues. Close-handed being like the foundations of the Christian faith, Jesus, the Son of God, the only way, Trinitarian God, born of a Virgin Mary. There's, there's several things that we would say, these are non-negotiable, the resurrection, but then there are other things that are open-handed. And what I mean by that is not that they don't matter because we should have conviction about scripture, but just that we would not allow every other thing that's not so intently part of what it means to be a Christian that it would cause so much division. Other ways we see it is our giftings, like one person's gift is elevated over another. Maybe you have the gift of mercy and someone looks down on that because they think their gift of, of preaching or their gift of, of compassion is more it was more valuable. And yet Paul would encourage the church in Corinthians to say, you all have gifts from God and they're all needed. A hand can't look at the foot and say, you're not necessary and vice versa. But sometimes we do. We see selfish ambition play itself out in churches around spiritual gifts. Sometimes we see it over influence. Like someone that wants to have so much influence in the church for their own selfish gain, prop themselves up and push others down. We can see it in just usefulness. Someone who's been serving and feels unappreciated and says, let's just see what happens if I don't show up this week. They need me. They won't survive without me. And sometimes you see selfish ambition and conceit and either a lack of telling the truth. If a, if a church is unwilling to stand in some key areas where the culture's going the other direction, if, if a church is unwilling to swim upstream in certain ways, that's actually could be selfish ambition to say like, I don't want our church to, to shrink. 
because I'm unwilling to, to stand on the truth of the gospel. And yet the other side of it is you have some churches that are like, I wanna be known that we don't compromise at all and they end up lacking in grace. There's a lot of ways that we can lead and see churches with selfish ambition and conceit and that mindset is prevalent. And it can be subtle at first, but the temptation to operate in the church with selfish ambition is real. Instead of thinking of ourselves as deserving the glory in the church, we have a different mindset. Here's the mindset that Paul says in verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Can you imagine for a second the unity that would be felt in a church where we look after each other's interests? Paul says it like this in, in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Can you imagine being a part of a church that is constantly trying to outdo one another in honor? That is looking to the interests of others? You see, at the heart of Christian unity is a mindset of humility, the opposite of selfish, selfish ambition. You see, conceit causes you to think of yourself as big and weightier than is actually justified. And humility is having a sense of your own littleness in comparison to your brother or your sister. But humility isn't thinking less of yourself as in your own worth or value. You are made in the image of God, every one of you. Every one of you here is made in the image of God, but the problem with that is that everyone else in here is as well. And so when we lift ourselves higher than a brother or sister made in the image of God, we've raised value on ourselves over them. This is how C.S. Lewis phrases it. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Arrogance and pride will not lead us to unity, but rather humility, looking after the interests of others, outdoing one another and showing honor. This, brothers and sisters, this is how we find unity. And it's a, it's a fight. We've gotta be intentional about our unity. But can you imagine what it would be like if the church was trying to outdo one another and showing honor and showing affection to one another? I mean, Paul knew what it would be like. That's why he showed them that when we live this way in this manner worthy of the gospel, this manner of unity through humility, it's a public witness to the world. The world takes notice of lives lived like that. It did then and it definitely will now because humility is not really a trait that we glorify in our culture. So the question then is like, how do you get a mindset like that? Well, Paul tells us in verse five where he says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The way we get this mindset is to look at the one at the center of our unity, Jesus Christ, and to see the doctrine of our Christian unity. Paul's imperative to them is to complete his joy 
by being unified through humility. But notice what actually upholds this call. He upholds it with doctrine. Paul says the way which you can have a mindset that's required for Christian unity is to believe in the incarnation of Jesus. That's fascinating arguing. The way you can be unified is think about the incarnation of Jesus. He says the way to be unified is a doctrinal stance. Look at how he argues in verse, starting in verse five. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, verse six, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being, hum, excuse me, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this is a very famous passage <clears throat> and we can get wrapped up <clears throat> in its beauty, in its glory, in its weightiness. And there's a time for that, but, but brothers and sisters, what I wanna do today instead is I want you just to see how Paul is actually using this poem as a doctrinal poem to lift up his call to unity. Because what he's doing is he's showing the mind of Jesus, the actual mind of Jesus to then be of practical use for his call to unity. And this, honestly, for a lot of us in, our, in the evangelical world in America, this confronts kind of a false dichotomy that many Christians operate with. Like for some of you here, studying and learning theology or doctrine sounds monotonous and boring, right? I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but I know that that's the case. <clears throat> it just sounds monotonous and boring. Like you're like, let's get to the practical stuff. My marriage is falling apart. I need help with my marriage. I don't need to talk about the incarnation. My kids are rebellious. So let's talk about how to raise children that actually love Jesus, I don't need to talk about this exaltational doctrinal statement. You know, I don't need, you know, maybe some of you, like the seniors that we celebrated last week, I just want to know what to graduate, or I just want to know what to major in in college. Some of you are in college and you're like, I just need to know what to major in in college. No judgment. I switched my sophomore year, so it's all good. Some of you are like, how can I show up to my job tomorrow with joy because I just hate my job? Maybe some of you in here are like, I need, to, I need help to just stop looking at things I don't need to look at. I need help not going too far with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Like we need practical help. We want the practical stuff in church. Doctors, doctrine is interesting and all, sure, but we need to get more into the minutia of my life because let's face it, we need to live lives worthy of the gospel, but yet others in here find yourself maybe enamored at theology. Like you love to learn. You love information acquisition that doctrine is. And so for you, it's like, I just wanna study the Trinity. Can we do a sermon series on the Trinity? No, I'm not smart enough to do a whole series on that, just so you know. You know, but how, how God exists as one, but three persons. You love to study the incarnation, like God in the flesh, what we see in our text today. Maybe you get geeked out over atonement theory, you know, substitutionary atonement, Christus Victor, what happens on the cross, maybe the resurrection really 
gets you fired up. Maybe you like talking hypostatic union, how Jesus can be God and man at the same time, or ecclesiology is, is, your, is your jam, or eschatology, you know, let's talk about rapture, let's talk about millennial reign, what's going on. And for a lot of you, like theology is exciting and fun and we should love theology. We should wanna know more about God and how he's revealed himself to us. But it's important that doctrine impacts your life. Doctrine should travel the path from your head to your heart, to your hands. Because that's what Jesus is after. He's after your heart. Because ultimately, that's what will impact your hands and how you live. Some of us are like sponges that have soaked up so much information, but we've never been wrung out. And Paul shows us that what we believe should impact our life. In fact, what we believe does impact our life. And he undergirds his call to unity through humility with the doctrine of Jesus' incarnation. In other words, what Paul is saying to us is the way to be fully united is to be fully humble in your mind. And then the way to be fully humble in your mind is to look more closely at the doctrine of the incarnation of how God became man in Jesus Christ. And so that's what we see in that poem. Jesus is God, though he existed in the form of God. Jesus is God. And I just wanna take a second to show you like, this is an early Christian poem or hymn that was probably circulated that, that the Philippians already knew that Paul was most likely quoting. That's what a lot of commentators actually believe, which means when this letter is written less than 30 years after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected, they are all calling him God. Jesus is God, and yet he doesn't cling to it for his own advantage. That's what it means by he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He was not in heaven going like, they got themselves in this mess. I'm not coming down. Instead, he, he, he pushes aside some of the privileges of being the king and creator of the world and he comes and takes on our humanity. He came to earth through a womb of a woman just like every one of us in this room and he made himself a servant to those he created. And he not only lowered himself in being a human, he lowered all the way down to die, the most shameful death imaginable, the death of humiliation and brutality of a Roman cross, and he did it for you. He did it for you and for me. See, seeing Jesus as the only one worthy of glory in contrast to our grasps at this vain glory is the way that we are truly humbled to serve one another and to honor Jesus. We've got to see the incarnation of Jesus. You see, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 18 says that the way that we're transformed into the image of Jesus is to behold Jesus. Now, I know we don't use that term a lot in our culture, the word behold, but just to think about for us to see Jesus is actually the way we're transformed into the image of Jesus. It's practical theology, the doctrine of Christian unity. But the poem doesn't just give us this practical doctrine of incarnation of Jesus's unity. Paul also gives us the doctrine of exaltation. 
This is how he finishes the, that, that poem. Verse nine, he says this, <clears throat> therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the future of Christian unity. It's a picture of unity within the Godhead. You have God the Father exalting Jesus, bestowing on Jesus the name that is above every human name across all of human history. And that one day in the future, every knee, every knee will bow to Jesus as Lord and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and then it'll happen back to the glory of God the Father. Like for the Philippian churches, you could understand just the practical weight of understanding this exaltation of Jesus. Because this means that in their persecution that was going on and in their suffering under the Lord of their world, Caesar Nero, they could believe that in the end, in the future, even Nero would be bowing his knee to Jesus and would have to confess him as the ultimate Lord. Can you imagine the picture of that, the reminder of that and the courage that would actually stir up in them to then let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel? But not just them. This practical doctrine of the exaltation of Jesus, which has already happened, not every knee bowing yet, but he is exalted at the right hand of God all you got to do is read, you know, like the entire New Testament after the Gospels to see that he is reigning and ruling now. When this happens, it gives us courage to see, uh, to see us, to stand firm and to stand united in humility. When we are in Christ and we see that unity that centers around him we know that one day we will bow the knee to him and see him as he is, glorified, exalted, king of the universe. And when that happens, brothers and sisters, our differences in this life will pale in comparison and be a distant memory. Just imagine just the utter silliness it would be when we see the exalted and magnificent Christ and we bow the knee and confess with our mouth that he is Lord, that we glance over and see a brother or sister in which we had a disagreement on. And in the midst of that moment that we'd be like, <clears throat> bro, I can't believe you still believe in the rapture. It's crazy. Like how hilarious that you believe we should have done that curriculum in kids ministry, man. That was, that was lame. Geez, why on earth did we sing that song by that band all those years ago? I don't even see their drummer here, man. I think he missed out. It's just silly. The, the, the amount of disagreements that we allow to cause disunity in our churches over silly things when the future of our unity is around one throne, one king, one name forever. And when we see the future of our unity in that way, 
it allows us to be united in the moment, in the present, despite our differences, forgiving one another for the way that we've hurt each other in moments of selfish ambition and vain conceit. In the face of persecution and suffering and authoritative earthly lords, Paul called the churches at Philippi to unity around Jesus through the hum humble mindset that was modeled by Jesus himself. And now by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are being called to the same thing. Unity around Jesus by the humble mindset that was already set forth for us and modeled by Jesus himself. As we close, I wanna just share this quote with you from A.T. Pearson. Here's how he says it about unity. <clears throat> he says this, to a true child of God, the invisible bond that unites all believers to Christ is far more tender <clears throat> and lasting and precious. And as we come to recognize and realize that we are all dwelling in one sphere of life in him, we learn to look on every believer as our brother or sister <clears throat> in a sense that is infinitely higher than all human relationships. This is the one and only way to bring disciples permanently together. All other plans for promoting the unity of the church have failed. <clears throat> All other plans have failed. See, we can have an aim or a plan for unity, but if it's not centered on Jesus, and if we're not approaching one another with a humble mindset, it will fail, but plans of unity in the church, they don't just fail because of our own flesh, they fail because of an enemy and our own selfish ambition. It's what we've got to fight for unity. But today, Journey Church, we can make a conscious decision to let the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the exaltation of Jesus Christ work itself out in us towards unity with our brothers and sisters around the one name of Jesus Christ. And so as we close, I wanna, as I usually do, give you kind of a call to action. And when I say a call to action, I know I was thinking about this this week, like some people might be like, oh, it sounds so, you know, like, can't we just rest in Jesus? And I'd say, yes, we should rest in Jesus. But as we talked about, the reality is like, if all we do, if all I do is just kind of give you theology to think about without some sort of like, well, what do I do with this? How, how do I get wrung out with this? What does it look like for it to go here, hit here, and then here? That's what a call to action is. And so for you, if you're in the room and you would say like, I'm not a follower of Jesus. Maybe, it's your first time here. Maybe for some of you, it's you're, you're brought here by somebody. Maybe you're checking it out. What I would encourage you is just to understand that I'm gonna see that, say this every week, that you just need to see Jesus. You need to see Jesus. I think when you look at Jesus, specifically from today, and the way we see his mind, the humility that he took from Philippians 2, 6 through 11, 
that you would see like he's actually what your soul has always longed for. That he is human like us. He was God made man. That he can sympathize with where you are in your temptation and your struggle. He's compassionate. One of the most common things that people said about Jesus that didn't like him in the New Testament is that he was friends with sinners. Man, what a beautiful savior. We could never get to him. That's why he had to come down. And he came down for you. So today, brother and sister, if you're in here and you would say like, I just don't know if he's for me, he's for you. See him, ask the spirit to let you see Jesus and turn from being the God of your life. Bow the knee and confess him as Lord now. If you're here today as a believer in Jesus, I would just really kind of have one question for you and that is, how do you need to be fighting for unity? How do you need to be fighting for unity? Maybe for you it's through prayer. You know, our biggest enemy is a spiritual enemy. Now he's been defeated, but he still comes after us. And the biggest weapon that we have in a spiritual attack is prayer. God's word and prayer. It's like, what do you need to be praying for? Do you pray for the unity of our church? Do you pray for the unity of God's church? Not just Journey Church, but just the church global. Even amongst our differences. And those, some of those differences we should worship in our own churches, but, but we shouldn't be infighting with brothers and sisters. Do you pray for unity? Maybe some of you hear the way you need to fight for unity is, to, is forgiveness. Maybe you need to offer forgiveness to someone who's hurt you. And this is a revolutionary idea, but maybe you need to offer forgiveness to someone who's hurt you, even if they don't ask for it. Like, I'll, get, I'll forgive them if they come tell me that they're sorry. And yet Jesus extends forgiveness when we didn't even ask for it. Maybe you need to offer some, maybe you need to ask for some. Maybe in your selfish ambition or conceit, in your flesh, maybe in just not even realizing it, maybe it was an accident, you've offended or hurt someone in the church. And what happens is that bitterness begins to take root and that soil of disunity in our hearts. So maybe for you, you need to humble yourself in the pattern of your savior and, and go and ask for forgiveness. And finally, maybe for you, brother or sister, you're just oblivious to the needs of others. Like verse four says, not looking to your own interests, but the interests of others. Maybe you're not even aware of them. Ask good questions. Be part of a journey group where you can learn the needs of people in our church. You can be an answered prayer to somebody and you can share your needs with them. Wherever you are in the room today, I'm gonna give us a minute for the Lord to speak to us through his spirit and then I'll pray and we'll sing. <clears throat> Thank you.
our Father, we come in this room before you with the knees of our hearts can symbolically bow before you. Acknowledging that Jesus, you are Lord. To the ends of the earth, you are Lord. In heaven, you are Lord. Under the earth, you are Lord. Your name and your name alone is worthy of not just our praise, but our very lives. And Father, we, we have so much in our lives that, that actually pull us away from you, that pull us away from each other, that the gravitational pull of our world is not towards holiness and godliness, but it's, it's the other way. And so God, we just come before you and acknowledge that we need you. First of all, we need you to be our Lord and our Savior. We need you to come in and make us new. And for those that have been made new in this room, God, we need you to help us. We have an enemy and you know it. Would you strengthen us? Would you strengthen our hands? Would you strengthen our minds? Would you transform our hearts that we may bear fruit of unity for the glory of your name in this world while you leave us here? Would you help us to offer forgiveness to one another and to receive it? Would you help us to be aware of the needs of those around us and that we would be like you, humble, approachable, kind. These are all things, Lord, that take a miracle in our flesh. We can't see it happen, but we know that because we are in Christ and because we participate with your spirit that we can see unity for the glory of your name and the public witness of the message of the gospel go forth in our world. Would you do it in us? In Jesus, I pray, amen.